Welcome to episode 120, The Science of Suffering and Moving Forward, The Pandemic and Beyond, featuring Dr. Daryl Van Tongren and Sarah Showalter Van Tongren, LCSW. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today we're talking about something that I think is probably in all of our hearts and on all of our minds, which is the experiencing of suffering and really what we've all been walking through in the pandemic and just in life in general, the experience of suffering and emotional struggle and what we do with it, how we make meaning. And before we dive right into this topic, I want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank Best Notes for their sponsorship of this episode. Best Notes is a straightforward HIPAA-compliant electronic health record for behavioral health and addiction providers, and you can learn more at bestnotes.com. Today, I am delighted to be joined by two clinicians that really specialize in this. Um, The first is Sarah Showalter Van Tongeren. She's a licensed clinical social worker, and she has a specialization in cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, narrative therapy, brain spotting, acceptance, commitment therapy, and liberation psychology. And then she's also joined by her husband, Dr. Daryl Van Tongeren, and he's an associate professor of psychology at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and a social psychologist. Um, Thank you both to Daryl and Sarah for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Um, So Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to have this specialization in really what I'll just call suffering? Yes, (laughs) the human, the human specialization of suffering. I am, uh, I started my, my work working in with kids in foster care. And I saw these kids as their understanding of life to be much more complex than even my own when I was 21. <laughs> and then uh, graduate school, and I worked in various capacities as a foster care social worker, interpartner, violent social worker, as well as um, case manager, medical social worker for kids with um, chronic and terminal medical diagnosis. And I'll never forget sitting in my first uh meeting with a doctor and a patient and having the doctor give such cold clinical diagnosis. And then they left and I stayed with the family and realizing their experience of what suffering and what living and the decisions they were having to make and helping them navigate that um, was what informed a lot of my practice. And then I'm now a private practitioner. And then uh, Daryl and I have, we've gone through our own suffering. And so that was what was interesting for me as now to be the patient at times and to sit in the room and then to have to sit with the thoughts and the decisions uh, has made me a better practitioner. And so I think about that. That's what brings us here today is um, we we wrote a book about suffering. We wrote a book about our experience as well as to help therapists with suffering because what we found is therapists, we really want to fix suffering and there are just things in life that can't be fixed. Um, and so, so yeah, Daryl, do you want to say? Yeah. So for me, um, my introduction to suffering was, uh, more academic. So in my graduate program, I got introduced to, uh, existential psychology and, and specifically experimental approaches to existential psychology. So being able to do really fun projects, like telling people that their life has no meaning and then seeing how they respond. But I promise this was all approved by ethics boards. 
Um, and, and for the longest time, uh, grappling with meaning and human suffering was very academic um, until graduate school, where I tragically lost my brother. Uh, he passed away tragically. And it moved from an academic intellectual enterprise into a very uh, personal experience for me that really gave my research um, new meaning and gave me a different perspective. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to be here, excited to share a little bit of what we've learned. Thank you both. Uh, so as we record this, we are now in the middle of March. And for many of us, and that's March 2021, for many Americans, that's around the time that we're marking the one-year anniversary of our initial lockdown due to COVID, where our lives turned upside down. And for many, if not all of us, they're still upside down and still kind of hanging in limbo. And this experience that I think we've all had of um, coping with the hypervigilance that this ongoing crisis has caused and the ongoing stress and how we um, how we make meaning. I know for myself, that really eerie, distinct sense that I've lost a year, but I know I haven't, but feeling like I have. And I don't think I'm alone in that. So I'm excited to talk with you and and have you share not just the research, but also your interpretation of what this means and how we make sense of any suffering, um, but also framed against this extraordinary backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's let's start. What is suffering? Let's start there. How do you, on an academic level, how do you define what suffering even is? Yeah, so uh, we'll define suffering with three C's. So the first is that suffering is something that's cognitively threatening. So we like to think... Um, about uh, all of us have a cultural worldview or a set of schemas, assumptions uh, that we think the world operates under. So for example, belief in a just world, if I'm good, good things will happen to me, uh, bad things happen to bad people, I should be protected. Suffering is cognitively threatening because it shatters those assumptions. So it violates some of the long-standing, uh, deep-seated beliefs we have about ourselves. The second thing is that suffering is chronic, so it's persistent and it's enduring. And this is different than other types of emotional or physical pain, which might be a little bit more short-lived or um, you know, quicker in duration. And then the third is that suffering is, is consequential. So it, it profoundly changes people, often in indelible ways. So people are often, and their life trajectories are often altered by suffering. And so to us, because suffering is cognitively threatening, it's chronic, and it's consequential, to us, we really see suffering as an existential issue, something that brings people into a closer awareness of some of the deeper and more profound realities of what it means to be human. Yeah. So would, we would define some of the existential threats that happen out of suffering, right? So there's five core existential threats that we as humans have. Um, the first one being our loss of control. Groundlessness is what it's called. So it's the same, it's the world is unpredictable and at the same time I have to make decisions based on a moving target. Um, that's, that's groundlessness. Uh, then it's isolation, that we're going through this alone. Uh, so I think about this, like with my clients, I can bear witness to their stories and their experiences, but I don't live the day-to-day -day with them. Uh, I think about this even in the context of marriage. We've experienced like the traumatic loss of Daryl's brother, uh, but he wasn't my brother. He was my brother-in-law, and I have a different relationship with him than, than Daryl did. So there is an individualized experience that happens in this life that can 
be the threat of isolation. Um, then there's the, the, the fear of identity. Who am I? So this existential question, especially when posed in suffering, is who am I now with the COVID this past year? Who am I now that we, that Daryl's brother is dead? Who am I? <laughs> it, suffering threatens that because we had maybe a very neat and tidy way of what we thought we were before. Um, and, it, and it threatens that. Uh, and then ultimately, as humans, uh, and the existential concern of death, that we're going to die. Um, COVID directly hit that for all of us very in our face constantly. Um, and to the point that, you know, even putting on a mask is a reminder. Uh, and we do that all the time now. So uh, there's the fear, fear of death. And we as humans and in America, we have we try so hard to avoid any conversations about death. That's why the anti-aging um, <laughs> is a whole industry. Uh, and then finally, the the ultimate fear of, of meaninglessness, that our life has no meaning, it has no purpose. Um, and so this past year that we've all lived in, this has threatened all of those five things. And then suffering in general threatens those five things and exposes them. Because most of the time we walk around, we don't think about death. Um, most of the time we don't walk around and we don't think about who am I, we, we just exist. Or we don't think about everyone's individualized lived experience. We just live. Um, and so it is exposed, all of that. Uh, and suffering does that. It challenges it. I have so many questions about what you just said. So going back to these seas of suffering, mm -hmm. so the cognitive threatening part, I think, comes in an easier package to digest, the chronicity. So tell me more about that. Where does the chronic nature of, of an experience, I guess, translate from this episodic thing to being then, well, this is quote unquote suffering? Yeah, so- with, uh, I think the chronicity and the consequentialism of uh, suffering, I, I think they go hand in hand. So I think there are just certain things that uh, alter people in fundamental ways. So for example, um, I'm a big fan of Irvin Yalom. Uh, he, he shaped some of my uh, approaches to how I think about human nature and, and even some of the, the research that I do. And he just wrote a book, uh, he and his wife wrote a book um, as they're walking through his wife's terminal illness. And, and during the book, she passes away and he wraps it up. And he talks about death. He says, you know, death is not something that we recover from. Um, it's, an, it's like an amputation. We learn how to adjust. And so I think suffering are those things that we have to adjust to. They're, they're chronic. They're going to persist with us. Of course, the intensity with which we wrestle with those things will subside. Um, my brother will have been gone for 11 years uh, coming up next month. Um, but I, I still think of him, right? It's, it's not like a... Uh, it's not like an episode that, that will flare up that I can kind of get treatment for. It'll subside and life kind of quote unquote goes back to normal. It's a different trajectory. Um, and I also think that has to do with how consequential it is. It can affect not just one domain of our life, but it can affect a number of different domains in our life. And so, you know, so I, suffering can come in lots of uh, forms. It can come in grief. It can come in uh, unrealized dreams. Sometimes um, people feel like those dreams that they had that were never realized, they might have double grief for because they're invisible losses, um, things that other people can't realize. Uh, and so so packaged together, we think those are the, those are the things that kind of uh, define suffering and make it different from other forms of pain. 
I think just that idea of invisible suffering, I remember almost a year ago, recording the Grip of Grief podcast interview with Jill Johnson Young, who's a grief expert. And we were talking about these, what seemed to be pretty inconsequential losses, but they kept adding up. And so not going to that concert, not going to that wedding, not going to Mm -hmm. that birthday, um, or the things that we wanted to do and we never got the opportunity, you know, whatever it was, because that that workplace was shuttered or, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, so many things. I mean, I, I, as silly as it sounds, like, my kids' birthday parties, you know, yes. like those. And yes, of course, you know, there were different experiences, but we have so many expectations. And so these losses. Yes. And so here we are now a year later. And, you know, only being able to speak for myself, just feeling this immense grief and wanting to acknowledge mm-hmm. for our listeners, like if you're there and you're seeing the same in your clients, um, I, I think we're pretty collectively there. <laughs> yes. <in> the <laughs> yes. it. Um, yeah. And, yes. and now sitting with the, continual now what Mm -hmm. and i think that's really where the meat of our conversation is going to be today of like okay Mm -hmm. so here we are we've been in this suffering we are struggling going back to what you were saying sarah with Mm -hmm. like there's so much groundlessness and we were just talking about that before we started recording (laughs) because we have some states that are reopening and eating Mm -hmm. indoors gathering without masks and and then we have the knowledge of these variants floating around and so in Mm -hmm. this moment as we record this in the middle of march there's just these conflicts and we have so little um, consistent information to make decisions on and it's just really disorienting. It's the information, but it's also the unknowns that's behind the information, right? So it's 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 the free. We have to make the choices as it's a moving target that we don't have the answers. And before COVID, like I was thinking about this before. Before COVID, we just we and even before suffering, right? We think of life in a certain way and we take things for granted. I don't like I, I use this example a lot with my clients. I don't often think about the fact that I have a a like a a head and a neck until I get like a, one of those raging migraines that like tightens my neck and tight, tightens my head and makes my muscles sort of tighten up. And then I walk around being like, oh my gosh, my head. But it's like, it's those are the invisible losses. Those are the invisible realities that now we are all and suffering exposes that we now, gosh, we think about our proverbial head and neck <laughs> constantly yeah. um, related to to our own experiences and what that's meant for each one of us. And our clients. I think that's a great point. There's a, there's a lyric in Fire and Rain by James Taylor where he says, only when the cold wind blows do we turn our heads around. Yes. And it's mm-hmm. exactly that, that mm-hmm. here we are happily walking through the sun and then the wind <laughs> blows and all of a sudden we go, wait. Um, so, so here we are. And let's mm-hmm. use the pandemic kind of as the uh, overarchingly relatable experience of loss, of grief, of suffering, and, and in all different shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. You know, goodness knows that nobody's experience has been the same as anybody else's with mm-hmm. elements of of socioeconomic hardship and other parts of privilege. And I mean, so many things that we could unpack. But so mm-hmm. if we can just collectively agree, this has not generally been a good time for anybody. Um, yeah. wh- what do we do? Um, you know, through the lens of the work that you do through the research, how mm-hmm. do we as clinicians and as humans sit with this ick? Yeah, well, you know, you, you kind of uh, you kind of tipped your hand there, even in how you answered <laughs> the question or asked the question. I think part of it actually does come with with sitting with it. So, um, you know, we're, we're not very good at experiencing pain. 
Um, we have we've culturally pathologized it. Mm-hmm. Um, we often feel like if if we're in pain, there's something wrong with us. Um, I think part of it is acknowledging, uh, and this goes for COVID. This goes for any experience of grief, loss, suffering. Uh, there are parts of life that are just unflinchingly and and uh, sadly just very hard and very cold and very difficult to get through. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with you if you're experiencing uh, stress, if you're if you're uh, feeling anxious, if your mood is dysregulated. <laughs> that, I mean, that just means you're alive and paying attention. Yeah. Um, and so I think the first thing we might say is allow yourself to fully experience whatever it is that you're feeling without rushing for a quick fix. And naming it. That's the piece, I think, that it doesn't necessarily take away the hard stuff behind it, but it does begin to put form to it, especially those invisible losses, right? Like naming the birthday party or uh, for some of my clients, the prom or the freshman college experience. Um, you know, they were mourning the loss of the parties. They couldn't, you know, like those those sort of rites of passage we have culturally. Um, and so actually, like, I think it starts with the being with the naming and then uh, the non-judgmental approach too uh, is really, really important because we do, we we put that like, oh, just because I'm mourning a party, I shouldn't feel so bad because there's other people that are suffering more. I, I say this a lot. There is enough suffering to go around. We all have a piece of the pie. And so it's not a zero sum game. There is suffering in this world. And we can, if we begin to do that, we can start to v- even validate it within ourselves. I'm glad you brought up that point. I've seen the same in my clients too, where I, I even call it like you just invalidated yourself, you know, it's just like yeah. right there where it's like, well, this is stupid, but blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, <laughs> back up. Like, hold on. <laughs> what if we, what if we took the judgment about its stupidity off and just let the, let this thing exist um, yeah. and whatever sadness or feeling or whatever's there. Um, so, so then you, you, you very simply say we sit with it. Mm-hmm. Why do we sit with it? What does it do for us if we don't try to push it away, numb it out, drink it away? You know, I, I, I work a lot in addiction. And so mm-hmm. we talk about how our tendency when we feel pain is to shop it away, to drink it away, to F it away, to gamble it away, mm-hmm. to do whatever to make it go away. So mm-hmm. you say, so you say, sit with it. And then people are like, yeah, right. That's easily done. Um, <laughs> what's the buy-in? What's the buy-in for sitting with it? I think you learn... there's so much value with it. There's so much we learn about ourselves. So I actually think that's where flourishing can begin. We as, as humans, and we've talked, we talked about this in the beginning before we started recording, we as humans, Americans, especially avoid any form of pain. And like you've said, Daryl, we've pathologized it. I actually think, you know, that's my thought as far as a lot of therapists go is um, I had so many therapists when I was struggling part of our story is our invisible pain was uh, infertility. And so we wrote about that in the book. And I went to so many therapists that were like, oh, well, you can just adopt. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) I I needed to sit with it, to grieve it, to mourn it, to bury it. Um, We're we're symbolic humans. And we need the symbol so that we can actually then begin to make something of it. But we can't make something of it if we don't know what we have. And so that's sort of actually the, the point of what we we write in our book is that like flourishing isn't that you've conquered something. 
It's that you've learned to integrate something. Um, and so learning to integrate suffering uh, into your story is actually, that is flourishing. You, you know, and, and, and sitting with the pain, um, you know, I, I think that wrapped up in there are different, like Sarah was saying, there are different meanings that are just so laden in there. And when you're experiencing pain, I think you have a set of beliefs about how you're expecting the world to be, and then your reality is not matching that. And oftentimes that's what creates the pain. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you numb it, if you Netflix it, if you shop it, if you drink it, if you smoke it, as soon as that high wears off, as soon as the episode is over, as soon as you know the Amazon box comes, you're going to be faced with that discrepancy again, and you're going to be in a perpetual cycle of pain. And so it, it's almost like that quote, there's no way out but through. If we, if we don't engage the pain, if we don't sit in the pain, name the pain, there's not the opportunity um, to do something with that pain. You're just going to get stuck in a cycle. Well, and then you have, I mean, what I see... This is what I hold on even in COVID as COVID won't define us. Um, we are making something in it. We're just, we're in it right now. Uh, we're not through it. And so that's, I think, where it's the hardest part of, for people is it's easy. And I think that's where therapists sometimes can mess up with clients is in our own lives. Maybe we have learned to accept and integrate a part of our story. And so we're on this other side of it. And so we're just like, sit with it, be with it. It'll be fine. <laughs> and they're thinking like, no, I don't want to yeah. do it. I don't make me. And it's so scary. And so I think even honoring that fear that comes up is a way that we're actually helping our clients understand. I'm so much of what I do with my clients is psychoeducation, right? Understanding of like, oh, there's the trauma response that's happening, the fight, the flight, the freeze. It served you this purpose in your life for a reason, especially of childhood, and it's not serving you now. And so that then it actually, it gives you control of that situation. If you can understand what's happening in your body, uh, it can then begin, you can then do something with it, even if it's choosing to be with it, bury it, whatever you need to do with it. But if we just keep ignoring it, we allow that to define us in a way that, again, doesn't allow us to choose our own identity. And one thing that cl that clinicians can do is offer a, a practical presence when their clients are sitting in that pain to be th be there with them as they're fully experiencing that. Yeah, I, w I was good. Thank you for saying that. I was, I think that's one thing, especially as I was a younger therapist when I first started out, it made me so uncomfortable. I, I was stressed and worried that, oh my God, I'm doing something terrible as a therapist because my client's still su suffering and struggling and it's not, I didn't take it away. And there was a message, I think, um, whether it was inadvertent or, or where it came from, whether it was through training or even just somewhat of the medical model that CBT does that I'm trained in, that we all are trained in, is just remove the distortion and you'll be fine. <laughs> and I'll tell you this, people that are suffering are quite clear. Um, they're not distorted. They're very anxious. They're very stressed out. They're faced with their death. They're faced with their struggle. They're changing and they weren't expecting to. So they're actually quite clear. And so I think as therapists, we could do a better job of being with our clients um, and validating their voices rather than invalidating them or trying to come up with some thinking error they're doing, <laughs> um, but providing that practical presence. I'm glad you brought up that point. And when we're looking at the origins of the practice of psychology, 
the influence of power of white supremacy of these of eugenics of these really heavy concepts and then introduce this idea of CBT that can be applied in a way that is really damaging and so it's like well that's not distorted you know it's not mm-hmm. distorted to have experienced homophobia or to have experienced racism no. or anything else it's not distorted right. to be in great grief or in anxiety or whatever it is but i mm-hmm. think especially in our culture because we're so valuing of appearance and like Mm -hmm. looking like everything is fine and we don't you know when we're looking at grieving processes we don't wear black for a period of time we just you know put on put on a new color sweater the following day and then carry Mm -hmm. on unlike other cultures where we say to the world i am in grief and this thing happened and it's in my heart and Mm -hmm. even that i mean there's so so many examples i'm i'm glad you talked about that um importance in therapy of we can't, as, as I've said before, like we can't really CBT our way out of suffering. No. It's like if we're <laughs> in pain, like we are in pain. And yes. that that I think is is even kind of brain breaking because we're so um, conditioned to yes. push it down, to get rid of it. Well, and even on our end as a therapist, we're conditioned, right? We're Absolutely. conditioned. Come in, tell me your, your symptoms. I'm going to write them down. You know, <laughs> okay, we're going to make a plan. plan. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to work on it. We're going to make it happen. Oh, you're not getting better. Something's wrong. Let's change it. You know, like there's a way we can conceptualize it and and, and we, we present it and the way that it does become threatening to us as therapists. I mean, to, to I think that's the interesting thing, right? With COVID specifically, we're all going through this together with our clients, although yes, individualized in our own lived experience, um, whereas other suffering, maybe we, we have experienced yeah. uh a diagnosis of a family member, a tragic death, and we've walked through that in some way. And so then we're helping someone else walk through it. But it 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 threatens our own way of understanding the world too when we're we constantly bear witness to the ways the world isn't fair and isn't just. I think that's an important point and the challenge for clinicians of sitting with our powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And that so many therapists, like we, I mean, by nature of being in the field, like we, we want it to be better, whatever it is. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, and when we feel like we can't make it better, then sometimes mm-hmm. we spin our wheels and we get thrown for a loop and we feel ineffective. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's a separate conversation from whether or not we are actually effective. Right. Um, but, but this idea of meeting our clients where they're at and simultaneously meeting ourselves where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we have these clients, these unnamed, all of the clients <laughs> who are in suffering, and we encourage them to name it, like you said, and to talk mm-hmm. about it. Then what? It's assessing. It's helping them understand it, helping them to to name it. Then this is where people really, really want to, to fight and buck. It's the acceptance piece. Um, because, again, where we can go haywire – as meaning makers, is we try to make all this shiny meaning that's very, um, very flimsy. And really, it's more of naming it for what it is, the reality of what it is to integrate into acceptance, uh, which actually is the beginning of naming the gravity of it, which is quite heavy, often, the gravity of that I'm like, if a terminal client that has a terminal illness, I'm going to die. The gravity of uh, when I was working with families uh, who had kids that were diagnosed with like muscular dystrophy, my child may not live to to the age of 21. Um, 
the younger sibling may have it, right? The gravity of that, sometimes we want to rush to meaning and the shiny things because it will distract from the gravity, but we need the gravity to get to the place of acceptance. Um, and again, I think we as therapists can throw that around a little bit um, because we have to, we need to get to the place of honoring their gravity because of the heaviness because it is so heavy and we throw it around and run around a little bit because because it is heavy and it's scary and we are powerless to it and to the effects it has on their lives. Um, and so we, we sit with them as they work towards acceptance and we sit with them as they work towards fighting acceptance too. In thinking about how I just reacted to what you said when you named, mm-hmm. you know, these elements of suffering, I know just for me, mm-hmm. the air in the room got a little bit thinner, like yeah. just in my experience in that moment, because as you were saying that, it's like I'm relating to my experience as a parent with a mm-hmm. kid with a major medical issue, you know, and yes. I'm relating to past experiences or having a loved one who is mm-hmm. in failing health. And, and I think that that shift that just happened even in this interview where you're talking about something and I feel the air get thin, Mm -hmm. I think is where there's that really delicate moment as helpers in needing to sit with our own experience of grief. And I I was listening Mm -hmm. to an interview with with Jill Johnson Young where she was talking about how she as a grief clinician keeps herself grounded because she's experienced a great deal of grief. And, you know, Mm -hmm. she even said, like, she's like, always have a cold drink next to me. Like I'm using different tools to um, Mm -hmm. keep my body grounded so that Mm -hmm. even if the air gets thin, I don't pass out basically because of the gravity (laughs) of what's happening. Um, And, and I, it's interesting because it just it just happened for me. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I'm appreciating about this interview is that w- the three of us are sitting here in our different lived experience of the last year, but also, you know, so there's the pandemic, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know, this thing of like some some concept of shared loss and suffering something, but it's also mm-hmm. different for all of us. And then that's layered on top of whatever pain and suffering we had before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that, I mean, yes. <laughs> Life's ke- life kept going. It's kept not like, going. oh, we have a pandemic, everything else stop, all the other bad things that can happen in the world, those things stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. No more car accidents, no more illnesses, like none of that happened. Mm-hmm. That that mm-hmm. wasn't how that worked. Um, yeah. One of my questions for one or both of you, what is the difference between pain and suffering? Yeah, yeah, that that is a good one. Um, you know, b- besides the, the three Cs, you know, I think kind of where we settle in on it is that suffering does reveal those existential realities. So it's there are those situations where your sense of identity is challenged, where you're feeling isolated, where death becomes more salient, where you're feeling more groundless than you ever have before. And all of those things culminate to you thinking, well, if I'm living in this world where I can't control anything and I've come into it alone and I'm going to leave it alone and I don't really even know who I am and the only certainty in life is death, the world must be meaningless. If you're thinking about any of those things, if you found yourself staring out of the window at two in the morning asking the you know question why, your chances are you might be kind of uh, you know flirting with suffering. Suffering is probably close to home. And so for us, we really conceptualize suffering as an existential issue um, which is why in our estimation on the, on the highway to flourishing, sadly, a lot of people get off on the, the exit of acceptance. Like mm-hmm. acceptance is very, very hard. And, and that is, is a lot to get to that point. But in our estimation, that's not 
that's not the the destination. Acceptance is part of it, but acceptance gives way for um, something even harder. So I apologize if the air will get any thinner. <laughs> yeah, so do whatever you need to do to ground yourself. <laughs> yeah. Ground um, yourself. It, 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 it gives way to something that that's even harder and to which both clinicians and clients might feel initially resistant toward um, engaging. Mm-hmm. And in our estimation, the way we've conceptualized this, it's a, a, a very deep and delicate process of what we call active questioning. And so if the pain that's caused from suffering is generated from the violation of the way we thought the world was supposed to be, our shattered assumptions, accepting the pain is very important, but you also, when you're in the midst of it, have the opportunity to start questioning some of those deeply held assumptions that you've held about the world. Because if you don't alter those assumptions, you might find yourself back in the same situation, right? You're going to find yourself experiencing the same pain when the reality of the world isn't holding up to your cultural worldview and your way of explaining it. And so I'm not talking about very small kind of minor adjustments, like, oh, I thought my neighbor was nice, but actually my neighbor's mean. I'm talking more about things like when people ask deep questions like, is there a God? I was raised thinking there is, but now I'm not so sure. Or if there is a God, is that God good? Or is the universe for me or against me? Is it cold? Is it uncaring? Those really deep primal beliefs we have about the world, the ones that we kind of rest everything else on. And so when those are pulled away from us, it feels like we're in rubble because we kind of are. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that we have to actively question and see if those beliefs actually hold up to the reality of our suffering. There's so much there to unpack. So what you're talking about is 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 that exit of acceptance where we want to get off and check some box and be like, there, I came to terms with it. Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about is the next step, really the deeper step is the, I guess what I'll call reconstruction and making sense of the thing, whatever the thing is relative to our beliefs and value systems, and then kind of doing this realignment and shifting our worldview and then stepping out into the world, moving through it with that altered um, set of rules, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And knowing that for some clients, they may not be up for that. They may not choose that. Um, for some therapist, I think that's where therapy can, we can tie it up in a bow sometimes and say, okay, you've accepted it, move on. Um, sometimes caseloads require that of us. Uh, but if we're lucky enough to get to the place where we can uh, help our clients uh, question these things, this this is actually what we call, this is where the place where you can start to build some of that existential resilience. Um, and so these, these things that uh, you've uncovered and you've questioned and you've rebuilt and you've you've taken down and rebuilt again. That's where you can you can lead towards um, and, and again revising some of these things that you never considered before, right? I, I remember uh, for for me some of our suffering personally, it, it did it. It challenged my view of of what I thought God was, and having to go through that was also incredibly painful too. And so, but yet necessary and important. Um, But being able to ask those questions in a safe space, like a therapy office, um, where we can hold and actually invite those questions, um, 
because those questions in and of itself can be existentially threatening. Um, and so allowing that space to uh, go go deeper about why the event and the suffering itself was threatening and what it exposed for us, that's the meaning we can learn from this, um, that we can gain from it. Uh, again, I'll, I always say this, I always put a caveat, I would trade it for the previous, <laughs> I would trade the suffering for not suffering. Like, I'm not saying it's a great gift and aren't we so happy? Like, no, that is crap. Like, I don't want the gift. I send it back. Right. But um, there is that thing that we can, we get, a, we get to relearn. I'm hearing almost these steps that are kind of emerging as you're both talking about this. And so we have, you know, the thing that happens and then we look at it and we're like, oh, does it meet the three C's? Does it have cognitive threat? <laughs> is it is it chronic? Is it consequential? And so then we kind of move into, okay, yes, check, it's suffering. Um, <laughs> our model in psychotherapy, so much, not always, but so much in the United States is geared at, you know, not, not necessarily to CBT, but these methods, these steps of like, well, if we do this, and we resolve this here, then we move on to that. And then the thing happens, and then the magic. Um, yes. <laughs> like, what are what are the steps really of suffering? Mm hmm. What does that look we, like? Like, are there we, are there explicit stages? And you go stage one, you know, the event stage two, like, <laughs> does that exist? Or oh. or is it really completely nonlinear? Can, can we say can we say yes and no? Can we say both? <laughs> yeah, you can. we're going to say yes and no. Permitted. <laughs> so, um, and, and this is just a small little non sequitur. So, uh, as an academician, I'm like, we have to have steps. Like, we have to have measurable, clear, delineated stages. And Sarah's like, well, as a human being who actually talks with other human beings, <laughs> and as a therapist, it's much messier. So, it's so messy. So, so our caveat is this: these are nonlinear, right? These you can come in and out of these in different ways. But broadly, how we kind of tend to think about these, um, we try to think about them in, and we, we try to give this away um, in a way that's easy to remember. So like the five A's. So the first would be to assess. And so to assess is to like kind of run that through uh, the, the three C's, right? Is it cognitively threatening? Is it chronic? Is it consequential? But also to assess what the client's pre-existing belief system is, right? So everybody comes in with a cultural worldview. What are those, um, what are their pre-existing beliefs that might have been shattered? And literally they might be saying, my head hurts. And they, you know, like, they don't know, like, oh, I didn't know I had a head, like, right? Or, I, oh my God, I did God's, like, this thing's happened to me. I think God's angry at me. And you're, then you're thinking like, oh, I need to assess what is their belief about God? Like, how do they, how do they view God? Because they may not have ever thought there's some underlying beliefs that are there. The, the the second is to work towards acceptance, right? So the second A would be acceptance. So if you can help clients name uh, their pain and accept uh, their suffering, uh, that's that would be the second step. And that's where a lot of, um, like we mentioned, a lot of people get off the highway, a lot of therapeutic intervention stop. The third is active questioning. So that's really when people are deconstructing their belief systems and holding them to the scrutiny of the reality of their suffering. This is incredibly distressing. Um, oftentimes people are noticing the discrepancy between what they believed and the reality of what they're experiencing. And the degree of that discrepancy 
um, is directly related to distress. So this would be a place where clinicians really need to be thoughtful about how they can help their clients deconstruct in a place that feels safe, where nothing is off limits to, uh, you know, to question. Can you say that again? Because I think that that point about the degree of distress was really easy to miss. Say say more about that because that's yeah. really powerful. Yep. Yeah. So so for those who want to go in a deep dive, Crystal Park wrote a 2010 article in Psychological Bulletin on making sense of the meaning literature. And what she proposes is a meaning-making model where people assess their current situation relative to the beliefs they have about the world. And if they line up, awesome. People are just trucking through life. But usually what happens in suffering is there's a discrepancy between what the way we think the world's supposed to work and the way it does. And the greater that discrepancy between our expectations and our reality, the greater the distress. And so things that are really violating for us that just come out of left field, senseless deaths, very tragic, unexplained things, those are extremely distressing. So greater discrepancy, greater distress. It's funny. I've 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 said that and I've thought that just not with those words. And I've talked with clients before mm-hmm. about how I see grief as the difference between what we what we either hoped or thought would happen and then what actually is. And it's that space yeah. in between where we're grieving. And so it's it's a different perspective. And it's you know I I would imagine to anybody who's having their own reaction to this, you know, realizing all of these rules. And so mm-hmm. to, to, and you, you've both been, you know, kind and open enough to share some of, of your experiences. When my, one of my children was very young, I think he was four months old, he was diagnosed with a very serious, um, uh, atypical blood cancer. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, that swing of just going through mm-hmm. all of this and how do I make meaning? How do I make sense of all these things that happened? And that one of the meanings I made was basically, okay, I paid my dues. You know, like this kid <laughs> paid his dues. Our yes. family paid our, paid our dues. And so now we'll be set. And then last year he had another major illness mm-hmm. hit. And so then that that shift again of like I came up with this rule that yes. said like okay you know you 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 paid your dues the, you know bad things can't keep happening to this kiddo yeah. and yet mm-hmm. by five he's had these two diagnoses that are incredibly right. rare so yeah. but I but I I appreciate that idea of when we make these rules that kind of reconstruction and then when there's that discrepancy that's when we get really lost and frazzled and I'm I'm glad Daryl you pointed that out because. Mm-hmm. I think that even just speaking for myself is that's the really disorienting, disorganizing part. It's not the acceptance. It's that next mm-hmm. part of, oh, no, this is this is demanding something of me in the opportunity in the opportunity or I guess even the demand to change my worldview. Yeah. And, and Beth, that's exactly why people get off the highway before they get there. Yes. Because right? that's groundlessness, right? That's yeah. what we're talking about. That's the actual feeling, the embodiment of what it is to be groundless. But but we'd like to think the the upside is that reconstruction that you were alluding to. So the, the fourth A is autonomy. Because I think there's something so incredibly autonomous about rebuilding and reconstructing a worldview that is accurate to your lived experience. One that you feel like you have psychological and emotional investment in, and that has been borne out in your experience. It's not something that you were necessarily given through your culture, that you were taught, but it's something that has held up to the empirical evidence 
sense of your own life. And that's so autonomous and, and so empowering to build a new narrative in which you're not defined by your suffering, but you've integrated your suffering. Right. It's not the only thing about your life, but it's certainly part of your life. Yeah. So, so we're much more than, than our loss of my brother or our infertility diagnosis, yeah. but we, but we are those things too. And so being able to craft a narrative that honors that and to craft a set of beliefs that is, that is genuine to your experience can be quite empowering. And I, I connect with that. And I've seen that both in myself and in my clients, the same thing that um, I think when you're in that third A, if you will, when yes. you're in active yeah. questioning and it's so um, agitating, it's hard to imagine getting through to autonomy, getting through to a point of like, okay, I've, I've made sense of this. And part of that is because I've changed the rules. Like I basically I had this hypothesis. Yes. Now I need to go <laughs> right. back. The hypothesis did not play out the way I thought it would. Now let's try with a different hypothesis. Right. Yes. Right. And, and you know, our, our our hope is that the kind of like that fifth A would just be a sense of authenticity yeah. so that people would begin to be able to live according to their values. They'd be able to live according to their narrative um, that through the suffering they 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 feel as if their life is more authentic than it was before and it gives them and i, I don't know how this has been true for you this has been definitely true for us is it gives you a depth that you have a capacity for that suffering even of others so it is this this capacity that opens up you know it's interesting the example that i've talked about with clients before and acknowledging that in giving this example, we can't ignore the discriminatory impact of the words and actions of author J.K. Rowling, but to pull from the concept of the Thestral from Harry Potter. So the Thestrals were this kind of weird reptilian invisible horse that most people couldn't see, but Harry and a character named Luna could see. And as the story unfolds, you find out that it's because Luna and Harry had seen death and the experience of having seen death gave them the ability to observe and see these Thestrals. And that idea, I remember when I read the first book, it really caught me because you can really identify in people whether or not they've seen death and grief and have suffered. And mm -hmm. and I think that's that gravity and the authenticity that you're talking about. And, and mm -hmm. as a highly sensitive person too, being able to listen to that and understand and, and read that, um, I think is a really interesting thing. And I would imagine for many of our listeners who are compelled to be in this work, who are um, natural healers, having experienced that depth themselves, and then are challenged with how do I help my clients um, in, in this transition through the A's, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, we hope that there's a bit of what we might call vulnerable compassion, right? Yeah. You, you feel a little bit vulnerable to it. And so you're able to, to meet that vulnerability of others with compassion. So now the pandemic, let's, let's, let's change gears. Cause we've been talking, I mean, we've had this backdrop, of course, it's, that's woven its way through this conversation. When we're sitting here a year in, and we are all exhausted and stressed and grieving. And it's like we figure out some, you know, quote unquote, I mean, you know, the darling quote of 2020 and 2021, which is the new normal. We figure right. that out and then it all gets shattered again. When we are in something that's so chronic, how, how do we sit here and how do we <laughs> explain? I, I guess, well, 
what should our expectation be for the next for the next year for the next however long COVID is going to be shaping our lives Hmm. as we walk through them? Yes, I had this instinct when you're talking that our expectation should be to survive. (laughs) 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 I just and I you know and I found myself while you were saying that also maybe feel the air get a little thinner too of. I don't want to lose another year. I don't want to, you know, like those, oh, not, a, which is why I think some people have declared it over, you know, acting like it is over um, because it's painful to, to name it, to sit in it and that it may be another year. I don't know. We don't know. We're still in it. Um, and so I, I think where I turn to, and I think where some of this work and the out, outgrowth of it is what is the day to day meaning I can make? That is a connection of those existential fears that actually are acknowledgement that they are existential realities. So one thing we we posit in a lot of our research is as a society, we've treated existential questions as fears. Like that's what they're actually called in the literature, the existential fears, um, where we actually say they're they're more than that. They're actually existential realities. They're human realities. And so if we can begin to sort of ask ourselves those questions of who do I want to be right now? What decisions can I make right now? Even if the decision is right now, I cannot make a decision in a way that's a decision. (laughs) And there's, uh, I think about relationships, right? With isolation, what are ways I can connect? Um, Yes, they're not the same. And there is the grief that comes with that, the reality this, the, that is worth grieving, and there is connection. And so having a Zoom call uh, with our friends, with the people. So it's it's almost like coming back down to the, to the basics of our humanness is what I would say. No one's going to like that answer, Sarah. No, I know. <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> but, I, but I think that's... I think that's, I guess, the thing that's going unsaid that needs to be said is that nobody's going to like that answer. Right. Like if I were to say like these five steps and then it would be great, I think I'd have a bestseller on my hands. (laughs) You probably would. And then you would have lots of complaints when it didn't work. Exactly. exactly Because that's what happens. And that's what I think is the interesting thing that we all deeply know in our human experience um, is that it's not simple and it is hard. And I, I don't think we like that. I, I know I don't. Like, it's hard. Um, it's harder than I thought it would be. Yeah, I think that pretty much could sum up just about everybody's experience of the pandemic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a- anytime I've tried to put a, a timetable on my grief, um, I'm woefully wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm just usually mm-hmm. disappointed. When when I get when I find myself running into trouble, I, it's when I say things like, I should be I shouldn't be sad anymore, or I, I can't believe I still feel like this. Um mm-hmm. instead of just kind of allowing myself just to experience it as, as it comes. Mm-hmm. That's very important to say. Yeah, there therein lies that should mm-hmm. that I yeah. think is when we invalidate ourselves. And I, I've heard it in my friends, I've heard it in myself, I've seen it in my clients of, you know, before we started recording, Daryl said, you know, like, okay, the expectation is like, it's been a year and now you should be back to normal, <laughs> like doing lots of research or whatever it is. And that it's just this fascinating thing 
that Mm -hmm. even society and different systems have put this should um, and also Mm -hmm. straddling academia being in the same environment as well, where it's like, Mm -hmm. well, the students should have adapted to online learning over a year, but they were never, they never signed up for that. And none of their um, education up till then had prepared them for that. And so it's just, mm-hmm. there's so many shoulds that are just these, this is minefield of shoulds. Right. right. Yeah. And, and, and not to get like too, too clever here, but that, that's the, that's those, those expectations coming back, right? That's that p- first part of the, those shattered assumptions. We're just like buying new assumptions, right? It's like, well, now I assume it's going to be like this. Um, and I'm not saying like, we're not learning anything, but it's, it, we're very quick to want to restructure our world. We're very quick to want to put new rules back in. Yeah. And actually, I think that's when I'm thinking about the fear of going through those A's, I think Mm -hmm. the fear is that you're going to get stuck. Mm -hmm. That you're going to be swirling around in the questions that are so unsettling. Like, I know for me, the periods of my life that have involved great loss, those questions, that's what keeps you up at night. (laughs) Um, and that's you look in the mirror and you look a little hollow like that's that is not a fun stage to be in and i think that part of maybe when the takeaways is and i I hope i'm right in saying this we don't stay in that we we don't we don't um it is a layover it's not usually people's destination and and it can be a longer layover for some than others we but you are absolutely right we don't often get mired in those questioning in, in that active questioning it can feel like it's never going to end, but but we do eventually emerge. We do start, you know, kind of reassembling. We do start kind of putting the 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 boat back together after we've torn it torn it down. But we we don't get stuck. Well, and we so meaning is is made out of like coherence, significance, and purpose. Um, and so the coherence of a story. Uh, and so, which is why we don't like being in the midst of a story. We like, you know, people telling us about the story and how it all tied up and makes sense. You know, sort of you've been using some narrative therapy. We like, we we don't like to be in it. We'd rather tell about it. Um, and then we, we want to feel like we matter in this world, that our life makes a difference. Um, and that, that our, our life uh, actually is worth living. Right is this purposeful intention? Um, we that's those are sort of the three ingredients academically of what creates meaning, uh, what the ingredients you need for meaning. And so when when our existential realities, when we're reminded of our existential realities, often those are the three things that go and diminish and into thin air. And so those are actually ways we can work towards, building meaning is even the coherence that things are not tied up in a pretty little bow. Um, yeah, it, it's sometimes um, making sense of the world by um, understanding that it's senseless, right? So like kind of coming to terms with that. Well, and I think I think that's actually one of those concepts that depending on on how it's delivered and where somebody is in that particular moment, it thickens the air a little bit. It actually gives you a little yeah. bit more oxygen. And yeah. the idea of it's okay if your meaning making is it that <laughs> there is no meaning right now. Yes. Like it's okay. Yes. Um, yes. And and I think, you know, thinking through this as a therapist, that it is that 
for some people may be that fear that if I go there, if I start questioning, what if I don't like the answers? What if I stay there? What if it never resolves? And then I just, I stare at the ceiling, that one crack in the ceiling for the rest of my life chewing on the inside of my cheek, you know, because I'm just so anxious and I'm so unsettled. And that what you're saying is like, actually, that typically is not what happens. And I think then there's this element that I'm hearing, my little therapeutic card is like intervention, psychoeducation, you know, where it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. we're okay. We're okay to be in the questions. And yeah. and I'm going to sit here with you in the questions while you make sense of this. And Daryl, mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly the wording that you used, but they're empirical lived experiences. You so, said something like that, where it's like just because we were handed this rule book by society, by religion, by whatever it was, or by many d- different factors, mm-hmm. um, taking our lived experience and questioning it and bouncing it off and then com- Co- uh, putting together something more cohesive is mm-hmm. really, I think, the um, the key here that that clicks that lock. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I can even speak from my own empirical research. Humans are nonstop natural meaning makers. We will not get stuck. We keep churning through. We make meaning. I, I've, yeah, just. We, we absolutely make meaning. We rebuild. We pull ourselves back up. We tell new stories. Um, and, and so I, I would encourage people who are listening who are, who are worried about that, you will get through that part. That part is um, awful, um, but it, 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 it's not forever. It's almost like an evolutionary instinct is what I yeah, wanted to say. Yeah, to, to, to make meaning. That. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for therapists who are a little bit concerned um, about this as well, um, it could be in part because some of these conversations, seeing your client actively question may lead you to start actively questioning. And so um, an awareness on the clinician's behalf that wading into existential territories might raise existential concerns in yourself is something also good just to just to be mindful of. Yes. Yeah. Our own work. That's. I think that's the most beautiful part of our job is that our clients and heart. <laughs> it's the hard and beautiful part of our job. Our clients' struggles and suffering exposes our own and our own beliefs get violated every single day. Um, and so it can allow us the greater capacity for if we're curious and opening up about our own beliefs too and the way we, we see the world that we didn't really expect. Um, it can open a whole a whole new space for us as well. So for me as a clinician, having the experience of um, having my own grief, my own pain, my own suffering was something that other people are experiencing simultaneously. And where I live, we had the mass shooting at Borderline Bar. We had uh, many people from our community that were at the mass shooting in Las Vegas. We mm-hmm. had, you know, the wildfires. And so yes. the, and the pandemic is in that same category where it's not something that happened to somebody. And so we're observers. Mm-hmm. We're actively experiencing it ourselves. And I think that's contributed just to so much burnout because like I'm having trouble with my own reaction to this, let alone what I call holding space with clients and mm-hmm. the challenge. And, and I guess also just wanted to say to our listeners, I see you. Yes. <laughs> yes. I see you and I yes. feel you. And yes. I think we're we're probably all there. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're not, please tell me how you're not there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're accepting your referrals, please yeah. tell yes. us. <laughs> please. Um, but there, I think there's so much more to be said about this topic, but I'm glad mm-hmm. that we had this time and this space to talk about this very human experience 
this suffering that we just don't like talking about. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think it helps us when we distance and we numb and we do all these things and we push it away. And so yes. here we are leaning into it, talking about the suffering, even when the air gets thin. Yes. And that it's still that meaning making and that, in fact, if I understand you correctly, leaning into it, experiencing it is part of the way through it mm-hmm. and part of yeah. the way to that, what I'm calling reconstruction and yes. and being more resilient moving forward because of the meaning we've made. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And I think that's what I'd say even to me, to you, to all the therapists is we cannot deny our humanity in this as well. And our clients see that too, right? We are modeling what it is to be human. And I've, I've found myself even in my practice this past year being more human and the transformation that that has occurred in a therapeutic context of that relationship has also been transformative and meaning. It's provided me meaning as a therapist. Absolutely. Um, it's one of the gifts we get, right? And then uh, for someone to see us as human that this is hard, this is really hard. We're talking about a collection of traumas. Complex trauma is what we're talking about. And we're when we can model it and walk through it as a human with our clients, I actually think that in and of itself is a model that it is messy and that that is a part of being human. And I think there's also a lot of gift in that because I'm trying to imagine like mm-hmm. with the mismatch that I feel and the inauthenticity, if I, mm-hmm. you know, bounced into session with, as I say, with my ponytail swinging, being like, how you doing? You know, like, <laughs> yes. and had all of this perkiness that simply yeah. is not matched. I, I saw a yeah. friend, um, I, you know, distance saw a friend, ran into a friend on the street and he said, um, you know, how are you doing? And I said, I'm okay. And he said, yeah, me too. And then he's like, I don't think anybody says good anymore. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> like, I, don't, I, I haven't said good in a really good, good long while. Yeah. Um, but I think that is also part of the healing power of connection and humanity. And I yeah. agree, Sarah, that we get that as part of the gift we get from our clients too. Yeah. Um, yeah. This has been such a powerful hour with the two of you. Um, please tell our listeners how to learn more about your your work, about your book, how to get in touch with you. Yes. Yeah. Daryl and I wrote a book called The Courage to Suffer, a new clinical framework for life's greatest crises. You can buy that anywhere books are sold. Amazon, your local bookstore, your library. Uh, you can request that it's at your local library. I love that. Um, you can check me out on Instagram. I'm at the existential therapist. And then I have my website, sarahvantongren.com. And then you can uh, find me at DarylVanTongren.com or uh, on Instagram at DarylVanTongren or Twitter at DRVanTongren. Wonderful. Thank you both. Um, I think you shed not only light, but also experience and groundedness in a time that feels groundless. So thank you for the gift that you've given not only to me, but also to our listeners. And I hope that this has been um, impactful and centering um, for them in a time that is still just full of so much chaos. Yeah, thank you so much for Yes, thanks, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. 
Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.